as your elder. And it's this. For Christ so loved the church that he gave us you. For Christ so loved the church that he gave us you. And time doesn't permit me to put each and every one of your names (laughs) in the place of you in that sentence, but you can go ahead and do that. And I don't even mean you in the sense of Christ put a person in a church, or Christ put a man or a woman into this church, or Christ put an engineer or a nurse or a doctor or a teenager or (laughs) into this church. I mean you, with all your experiences and histories and gifts and failings and scars and sins. And he gave you two, if you're a member of this church, (laughs) this church, And so if you're a member of another church, then you can substitute maybe in your mind whatever church you're a member of. That Christ expresses his loving reign through the intentional assembly of individuals into a local church. That's the premise. Christ so loved the church that he gave us you. Maybe you feel the problem, though. We don't always see what he is doing and why he is doing it. We may feel that our church is somehow misarranged. Like we're trying to put together a puzzle from three different boxes. Because we we love team making. Building teams, at least having an opinion on teams, right? Whether it's sports with fantasy leagues or your kids' league, you certainly have opinions about, you know, who should be playing on the team and what position they should be playing. Or even when you go to watch a game and you're like, man, I wish, here I go, Carolyn, I'm stepping out of my element. This pitcher was pitching this game, you know, ah, why did they have him on third base? Or maybe something like, I don't know, you like gaming, RPG, you assemble a team, right? You want to make it just right. Or even kids when they're young and they're playing a game, right? We teach them from a young age how to, you know, who's captains, how do they pick teams, putting together a teams. We have opinions about what a good team is. And so we certainly have opinions, whether we admit it or not, about how the church should be put together. But the problem is really with us, because we fail to understand Christ's love, so we fail to submit to his grace. And we will either fight him for it, to try to get that grace in the way we think is best, or we will flee from his grace and look for blessings outside of what he determines, rather than submitting to him in faith. So that's the premise, that Christ so loved the church. He gave you, that he gave us you. And the problem, do do we understand his love? Where's the proof? Well, it's right in front of you. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is talking in this letter about how 
how you as a church are loved in Christ more than you can ever know, and so you should live like it. Chapter 1 through 3, he talked about a lot about what God is and has been doing since before time began. In chapter 1, verse 4, even as God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Saying Before time even existed, God began loving us in Christ and planned what he's doing right now. And he'll go all the way to the end of chapter 3 where he's been explaining how God works in Christ and he, now he prays so that Christ may dwell in your, this is chapter 3 verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I mean, he even said in chapter 2 that part of the reason we were made alive in Christ is that, 2 verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That from everlasting past to everlasting future, God is pouring out his love on his people. And now in chapter 4, he zooms in from this big cosmic scale to the church. To the local church, because he's writing to a church, a specific church. And he's starting out then in, in chapter 4, you'll see it in verse 1. In verse one Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Paul has a hard time not continuing to convince us of things. <laughs> so rather than jumping right into application, he starts making argument again. <laughs> and in verse 4 through 6, he's talking about all the things we have in common. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit. And then he gets to where we start. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And now he's going to go through to, to, to show how our uniqueness, how our individuality plays a part in making the church like Christ. That Christ so loved the church that he gave us you as you are. So I'm going to read Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And as I read through it, a couple questions you can think about. According to this text, what do Christians do? Verses 7 through 16. What do we do? And... Why do we do it? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, 
what does it mean? But that he also had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who, he, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We receive. Christians receive. That's what we do. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Verse 11, and he, that is Christ, gave apostles, teachers, to us, to equip us. Why? Well, let's think about it. We see in the, the first four verses, 7 through 10, that Christ gives you grace. Christ gives you, Carolyn, <laughs> you, Ruth, grace. I mean, we are, in some sense, familiar with how professional sports work and contracts and salaries. I mean, Russ is going to go see the Tigers play the Yankees soon. You know, the team that is famous for, hey, we've got a lot of money <laughs> so we can buy the talent. <laughs> and in a sense, that's how the creation of a team works. It's the allocation of resources toward a specific goal. <laughs> and so a lot of times when, especially in sports or, or business, one organization has a lot of resources, <laughs> they can pour money into a good team. Or maybe sometimes the smaller cities or schools, you know, they don't have as much money, so they have to use their draft pick or their budget very wisely. You know, are we going to blow all our budget on, you know, one player or, you know, try to build a... We're familiar with that. But the church works a little differently. We see in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's starting to explain why we're given grace. He's already contrasting it with verses 4 through 6 when he said one body, one spirit, one uh, your call, one hope, one Lord, one faith. And now he says every single Christian is given something unique. Grace from Christ. And it is according to the measure of Christ's gift. <laughs> Whereas sports contracts and drafts are based on ability or the worth of the player, 
the grace we receive is based on the bottomless bank account of Christ's grace. And so there's no salary cap on what he gives us. And so he is pouring out in everything that you are grace. So that even when we feel limited, we are not. Why? Why would he do that? Well, Paul continues. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. If you were paying attention when Carolyn read Psalm 68, verse 18, you may have noticed that Psalm 68, 18 says he received gifts from men. And unfortunately, a lot of Bibles format Ephesians 4, verse 8, to look like he is quoting Psalm 68, 18, when what he is doing is explaining it. Because if you go back and read the whole psalm, that's, in a sense, it's talking about the Exodus, how, the, how God came down and redeemed a people out of slavery, and they plundered their enemies as they left receiving those gifts. But it goes on to say how then God is giving power and strength to his people, that the receiving gifts is one side of a coin, which is giving to his people. And since he has been saying in this letter that God has been doing a single work in Christ throughout history, he has no problem saying, yes, this psalm that's about the Exodus is also about Christ and his victory and his coming down and freeing us from sin and death and slavery and giving us gifts. That the grace you receive, the, the grace that is unique to you, uniquely displays Christ's victory. And he goes on to explain verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So in a sense, he zooms back out real quick, look at the whole cosmic scope to say the Lord Christ, ruling in heaven, came to earth. He descended. He died for our sins. He rose again, ascended to heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, that he might fill all things. And so that grace each of us receives isn't merely a sign of Christ's victory. It accomplishes the effects of his victory. At the end of verse 10, that he might fill all things. That you uniquely execute the reign of Christ. 
And when we think about money, we're moving further and further away, perhaps, from cash and from coins, right? Some people act like you're crazy when you pull out your wallet with paper bills and change <laughs> at the store. And we, I mean, any nation does this. We put things on our money that mean something to us. So that even though now, when you see a penny, you might not even bend down to pick it up. <laughs> we put Abraham Lincoln on the most you know, basic measure of currency because of what he represents to us. The unification of the nation, the freeing of slaves, <laughs> liberty. We even have a monument to him in Washington, D.C. to hope, hopefully stir up in us that desire, right, for the same things. But Paul is saying, we ourselves are living monuments to Christ's victory. That those who place their faith in Christ, Christ pours grace into them as a result of his victory, and not even merely to just show it, but that we would stand up off the pedestal and go out into where he places us so that everything would be filled with the glory of Christ. For Christ so loved the church that he gave you grace. That Christ builds his body through you by giving you unique grace and unique gifts. And then we are faced with a choice then, whether we will fight this, whether we will flee this, or whether we will embrace it in faith. Whether we will fight Christ and say, this is not the kind of person I am supposed to be. This is not the kind of resources I am supposed to have. My time is too limited. My money is too limited. My skills are too limited. So I'm going to ignore what you are doing and force it through myself. Or to flee from him and just be completely overwhelmed. <laughs> to look at the task he has called us to to magnify the king of kings and say, I, I can't do that. I, I can't. And give up. But in both, both cases, we are not relying on his love. Because we tend to measure the value of our gifts and the grace we, we receive against that of others and not that of the giver. <laughs> that he defeated his enemies in a way that is impossible for anyone else to do <laughs> through death. <laughs> but faith, faith has no quick results. It calls us to choose between what is right and what is easy. It is easy to fight Christ or to flee from him. 
but what is right is to accept what He gives. And that's the battle of faith, to see what He gives us as of infinite worth. That He is not constrained by a budget or some pool of resources. That he gives to each and every single one of us something which no one else has and which is of infinite value. His grace. Christ also gives you leaders. So now he moves from 7 to 10 talking about our individual gifts and talents and the way Christ magnifies himself through us to say, well, that doesn't mean you just then go and do whatever you you know, feel is best, that there's no organization here. I mean, you've probably seen five-year-olds try to play soccer, you know, just kind of bunching up. We, I always, we always got yelled at for saying, don't be like grapes, you know, don't cluster. Because there are rules that define what soccer is <laughs> and how it should be played and how it can be played efficiently, And because of that, we have everyone's favorite position, referees. Referees. Everyone loves a referee when they're agreeing with you. They're there not to make the game lame or stupid or to cause one team to lose. They're there because rules define the game. And if we start playing soccer or baseball, however we want to, it stops being that sport. And so why did Christ give the church leaders? Why did Christ give the church leaders? Well, there's the hint in verse 11 and even who these leaders are. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... What do they all have in common? Well, we can see how they're all different, or at least different in some ways. Apostles and prophets are, as Paul hinted at in chapter 2, a position which is no longer around. Evangelists, is he making somehow distinct from the other roles? The word evangelist is only used maybe three times in Scripture, and this is one of them. But what's the evangelist doing here? Whatever work this is is focused inward, into the church. Then we have shepherds and teachers. So Paul says Christ gave the church leaders who reveal the mystery of the gospel to us. That is the grace he has uniquely given to them to be skilled in pulling back the curtain and pointing to how Christ fills all things. (laughs) That the gospel is not just for this two hours of the week. (laughs) That Christ reigns over every inch of your life to explain what has been proclaimed to us through the scriptures. 
who's doing the work of the ministry here? According to Paul, who's doing the work of the ministry? You are. The saints are. He gave those leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, to go ahead and define ministry (laughs) there. That the church comes from the wisdom of Christ, and the church fills us with the wisdom of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he's saying there's essentially two, when you zoom out, two parts of the church, the leaders and the members. And the church can't function without either of them. Going back to that puzzle analogy, it's like you're trying to build a puzzle. I don't know about you. My strategy is do the edges first because <laughs> then it's easy to figure out how all the other pieces or blobs work together, right? So without the edges, it starts to have no definition and kind of just go everywhere. <laughs> but if you just do the edges and don't fill it in, now you just have a weird frame. <laughs> and so the leaders and the members are like that. The leaders giving definition to the church, guiding it, shaping it, showing us how we should be, and the members filling it out. Working together, both parts working together to make us like Christ. Because that is how we remain rooted in Christ. And it is how, through that wisdom of Christ, the church defeats all other wisdom. Right? Do you see that? In verse 14, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I mean, we live in a wonderful age where there is more access to information than ever and perhaps then more deceit available to us than ever. And there are very good conversations we can have about how to make organizations better or websites better or governments better. But those things are not how Christ ultimately reigns. He established the church to fill all things. Not a government, not a school, not a business. The church. The church is how Christ defeats the wisdom of the world. And so for that reason, for, because Christ so loved the church that he gave you leaders, that Christ builds his body through you by giving you unique leaders. Now, if he is intentional about every detail, every gray blade of grass... <laughs> every molecule, then 
the giving of Jeff and Bill and Dan and myself, though I'll be stepping down soon, (laughs) to you, these individuals sitting here now, is not a mistake. It's not even a, well, maybe let's try this out. I think maybe those of you in business, we, we like to do that a lot, right? Interview a candidate. Well, I guess they're the best fit. And so then we are faced with a choice, once again, to fight his grace, to flee from it, or accept it in faith. And that's on both sides of the coin. Right now I've been talking a lot to the members, (laughs) but it's both sides of the coin, to the leaders as well. That if Christ puts this church together how he sees fit, with these leaders and these members then when we have trouble connecting with each other, whether it's the members not understanding why, why are we doing this thing? (laughs) You know, or the leaders maybe, why isn't this going so well? (laughs) We have an opportunity to come to draw nearer to each other and become more like Christ in that Because the goal of Christ in the church is not, as good as all of these things are, an efficient kids' ministry or an efficient meal ministry or an efficient providing services to our community ministry, although those are all good. The real goal is to make us like Christ. And so sometimes he will build up certain ministries within the church to accomplish that. Sometimes he will let them fall apart or tear them down. It's so easy for us to confuse form and function. Form being the shape a thing takes, function being what it is intended to do. For us to say, yes, we are to be like Christ and make him known, and it must look like X, Y, (laughs) Z. And so we may fight to insist we do certain things or do them a certain way and butt heads with other people, or we may just flee from the church altogether and say, I can certainly be a Christian without any of these people. Now, that is not to say, if you're a member of Union Lake, you should be a member of Union Lake until you die. If we thought that, we would not be moving to Japan. (laughs) There are certainly times in which it is appropriate to move from one local body to another, which is why when we read our church covenant next week, we will end with that and I can't quote it, which maybe is a little sad. Something, yeah, when I leave this place, I will as soon as possible join with another body. <laughs> Once again, faith has no quick results. We live in an age when, where efficiency and busyness and measuring visible results is king. 
And so we want to import that into the church <laughs> and say we're not moving fast enough. But Christ defines the game we are playing. Christ defines the battle. He, Paul even says this in chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, that your fellow church members, your leaders, even unbelievers outside of the church aren't your enemies. And in that vein, Christ gives you to others. He gives you grace. He gives you leaders. And Christ so loved the church that he gives you to us. You, Rich. You, Dan. You, Tim. We're familiar with teams. We're also familiar with group work, especially if you're teachers, right? So much fun, group work, group projects. <laughs> I mean, the, the typical, what, stereotype, right, is that there's someone in the group who doesn't do anything, takes credit at the end, and then there's one, you know, one person driving the group. <laughs> Sometimes watching our, our teams, it can feel like that, right? Like there's the... People just show up to get a salary, third string quarterback or whatever. Then there's the star. Why did Christ give us to one another? Why did he arrange this church the way it is? Well, he says in verses 15 and 16, rather speaking the truth in love... Now, when we hear that phrase, speaking the truth in love, whether we are saying it tongue-in-cheek or not, a lot of times we think, oh, that means gently telling someone they're a moron. I'm going to tell, you know, lay it straight, but I'm, I'm going to do it really loving-like. but he's, he's been sowing the seeds, laying the groundwork for what it really means, which is declare the gospel to one another. Because we saw in verse 8 that the gospel was declared to us before Christ even came through the prophets. And then we saw in verse 11 that the gospel was and is being explained to us by our leaders. <laughs> and now, having been declared and explained to us, it is now applied from one member of the body to the other. That while because of time or distractions, it might not always be possible to do this, that the goal of every single interaction between Christians is to magnify Christ in that moment in time. Whatever burdens we carry, whatever successes we carry, 
whatever issues or friendships we carry into that fellowship and that interaction, the goal every single time is to fill it with Christ and what he has done in redeeming sinners and in building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that is how, then, we grow. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Christ is filling all things. Everything is for his glory. I'm not going to go into application, but money, the clothes we wear, the jobs we do, the way we spend our free time, how we care for our families and friends and interact with unbelievers and do things at work and write emails, <laughs> how we cook, all of that, everything. There is always room for us to grow. Maybe those of you who work in the auto industry are familiar with the Japanese concept of kaizen. Always be improving. That we have not yet tapped into fully or reached <laughs> the, the understanding of the love of Christ. And we never will. <laughs> and so then every opportunity when two Christians come together is an opportunity to become more like Christ. Because it takes every single Christian in the church for you to become like Christ. He says so. From whom, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it, it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That doesn't mean you have to go you know, have coffee with every other person in this church, you know, in a rotating list. <laughs> but it does mean the church is nothing like a sports team or a business that has its MVPs and power players <laughs> who can carry the team. <laughs> it means... That grace was given to each one of you so that we would work together in this church that Christ assembled to make you more like Christ. For Christ so loved the church that he gave us you. You. With all your strengths and weaknesses and flaws and sins and scars and abilities and experience and insights. Christ builds his body by giving you brothers and sisters that you will not encounter anywhere else. And so then we are once again faced with a choice to draw near to each other in faith and to submit to his love or to resist it 
to fight, to force others to submit to how you think they should be and how the church should be. (laughs) Or to flee maybe to corners of this church where you will not interact with certain individuals or to another church entirely where you don't have to deal with difficult people or to just retreat into yourself so that no one will ever know who you really are. I mean, I heard a great joke this morning. What is the invisible man's least favorite room in the hospital? It is not that, apparently. That's what I thought. It's the ICU. And that's a joke. But we see in, this, in, in Scripture there's something that's true about that for all of us. We do not want to be fully seen. We do not want to be known. We want to be able to have some part of us that is protected and walled off, <laughs> safe but unloved, hiding in the darkness. Paul even goes, ahead, goes on to talk about this in chapter 5. Verse 8, and I'll just kind of say some stuff from there. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. How? Through the church. Through the church. Back in chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ... All right, get ready for a really sloppy medical diagram. From whom, Christ had, from whom every joint is held together and joined and equipped. So this doesn't quite work, but it's like every single muscle connects to every other muscle, somehow all at the same time connecting to Christ. So as one gets drawn closer to the Lord, it cannot help but bring others with it. (laughs) And as those draw together, they cannot help but be drawn further into Christ. That makes no sense. I'm not going to ask you to draw that one, Cindy. (laughs) To trust Christ and his love that every single thing he does, every moment of every day, everything he has made you and is making you, everything he has done in and through this church, everything that this church has experienced is somehow because he loves us. That is the challenge of faith. (laughs) Why would I want to say this? (laughs) That Christ so loved the church that he gave us you. Because I've seen how much I have needed you in the past five years that I've been 
an elder here? Because some part of me came in with this expectation that I am the one doing the work of the ministry. I am taking care of people. (laughs) I will help people grow. Not entirely false, (laughs) but without considering this. I need you. You, who you are, who Christ has made you and is making you so that Christ would be magnified through us. Christ so loved the church that he gave us to one another. And he will never fail us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your tender care,